Well, folks, good morning, Jay Dave's here. It's Jerry Adams here again. It's a beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon in Belfast, and I've just watched the Antrim hurlers being beaten by the Dublin hurlers. And, you know, it's better to win, of course, it's better to win. But we never give up, and we kept coming back at them, and Dublin were the better team on the day. But well done to the herders, and by the time you get to hear this broadcast, perhaps on Sunday afternoon, the footballers will be out, and the women footballers are out also. So the county is very much in terms of the Gales and Gaelic Games in a renaissance at this point. Now what we want are wins. So Yanni Shin, on a suppose a more somber note, as I listened to the reaction to the inquest into the killings of our friends and neighbours in Bella Murphy away back in 1971, I couldn't help but think about all the very different meetings that I was part of with British Secretaries of States in particular and with Irish government ministers especially with and on behalf of the Bella Murphy families. You know, and the reason I say this is, is not to cast up, but it's just to make the case that the reality is that the coroner's conclusions in the Bella Murphy case will not have surprised any of those who have been in power in other state over the last 20 or 25 years. Every government, Conservative and Labour, has known the truth of the events since they first occurred, and that's why they stalled and prevaricated, rejected and obstructed every effort by the families to get to the truth and to ensure accountability. And so too with the Irish government, they haven't been much better. I remember in 2008, the families and I met Dermot Hill, Dermot Ahern, who was then the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs. In 2010, we met with the then Minister for Justice, Michal Martin. We visited the sites of the murders. Michal Martin was with us and the families told him of the circumstances of the deaths of their loved ones. When I was elected first to the Oireachtas, and since that point, the Belmurphy families visited Leinster House on several occasions to lobby for support. In November 11th, I read the names of those killed into the record of the doll for the first time. I said, I would like, if I may, to re read into the record the names of those killed in Bella Murphy. Father Q. Mullen, who was 38 years old, Frank Quinn, 19, a father of two, Joan Connolly, 50, a mother of eight, Daniel Taggart, 44, a father of 13, Joseph Murphy, 41, a father of 12, Noel Phillips, 18 years of age, Eddie Doherty, 28, a father of four, John Lavery, or Laverty, who was 20, Joe Carr, 43, a father of six, John McCarr, 49, a father of two, 
and Paddy McCarthy, who was 44 years old. And I implored the government to assist and support the family's campaign and their demand for a full independent investigation. In March 2015, the then Taoiseach and the Kenny met all the families and in July an all-party motion in support of the Bella Murphy families was passed in the Dáil. The motion also supported the Stormont House Agreement on Legacy Issues. But regrettably, the Irish government never adopted a strategic approach to challenging the British government on the Bella Murphy case. As in so many other cases, these issues were generally viewed as an irritant in the government's discussions with the British. The response of Antishak Michal Martin following his meeting with Boris Johnson shortly after the inquest underlines this. Mr Martin couldn't bring himself to speak about the murder of civilians by the British forces. He waffled his way around what he described as the Bella Murphy situation. It was, he said, a good discussion with Johnson. And this after the families had made clear how contemptuous they were of Johnson's response. So I outline this uh, little calendar of cover-ups as evidence of the enormous courage and tenacity of these families. For decades, but especially in the last 20 years, they've never wavered in their determination to prove their loved ones innocent of any wrongdoing. And, you know, I'm just in awe of them. When I was in uh, Corpus Christi Chapel, listening to Mrs. Justice Siobhan Keegan, who took almost three hours to read out her judgments from the inquest, there were other family members there. There were victims, there were witnesses to these terrible events, which left 11 people dead, including a priest and a mother of eight. Ten of them were shot dead. The available forensic and other evidence could not confirm that the 10th John McCarr was killed by the British though it's widely accepted that he was. And all were deemed entirely innocent by the coroner who described the use of violence by the British Army as unjustifiable and disproportionate. I found it particularly poignant when she was reading out the case of John McCarr, because of course he was killed outside the chapel gates, the chapel that we were sitting in, after locking the chapel. And when I saw later the response, the emotional mixture of joy and sadness by the families at the outcome of the inquest, I was struck by the similarities between this occasion and almost exactly 11 years ago when the families of those killed on Bloody Sunday and Derry heard the outcome of the Savile inquiry. And Martin and McGuinness and I were in the Guildhall Square that day in June 2010 as the families of the victims, the 14 victims of the same regiment, expressed their delight at the conclusion of the Savile Report. And that same day, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, 
addressing the British Parliament, apologised for the actions of the Paris. However, then he went on to defend the record of the British Army in the North by claiming that Bloody Sunday is not the defining story of the service the British Army gave in Northern Ireland from 1969 to 2007. Bloody Sunday was exactly the defining story of the service of the British Army in our part of Ireland. The Bell and Murphy massacre took place six months earlier than Bloody Sunday, and the Spring Hill massacre, in which six people died, proves that Cameron was wrong. Bloody Sunday, like Ballamurphy and Spring Hill, are exactly the defining story. So thinking of all of this and of the response of the Tory government of Boris Johnson, like that of Cameron and every British and Unionist government for 50 years, it has been the response of cover-up to cover up the culpability of their forces in the killing and wounding of citizens. On the day that a coroner found that nine innocent citizens were murdered by the Paris, Downing Street issued a statement which said that the British government intends introducing a legacy package that will deliver better outcomes for victims, survivors and veterans focused on information recovery and reconciliation and ending the cycle of investigation. This package will deliver on the commitments to the British veterans in Northern Ireland, giving them the protections they deserve as part of a wider package to address legacy issues. In other words, on the very afternoon of the inquest and its findings, they give an amnesty to those who had killed our neighbours and friends in Bella Murphy. And this is a unilateral breach of commitments made by London in the Stormont House Agreement. And it's part of the pandering to the right-wing English nationalist sentiment that created Brexit that still thinks it has an empire and the empire is us. It's also the inevitable consequence of a political and military strategy that has its roots in Britain's counterinsurgency efforts and colonial wars throughout the 1940s up until the late 1960s. It should never be forgotten that British policy here was dictated in a large part out of this experience and by the policies advocated by British General Frank Kitson. In 69, in the year before he was sent to the north to take command of the 39th Brigade, which covers the Belfast area, Kitson published low-intensity operations, subversion, insurgency, and counterinsurgency. I remember getting this book and reading it. I would commend all of you to try and get a copy somewhere. In it, he wrote, Everything done by a government and its agents in combating insurgency must be legitimate. But this does not mean that the government must work with an exactly the same set of laws during an emergency as existed beforehand. The law should be used as just another weapon in the government's arsenal, in which case it becomes little more than a propaganda cover for the disposal of unwanted members of the public. Shinei Akarja, understand this, and you begin to understand the rationale 
behind British state collusion with Unionist paramilitaries, the use of sectarian killings, the torture of citizens, of prisoners, the use of shoot-to-kill policy, plastic death, murders, extensive human rights abuses inflicted by the state and its agencies, the emergency power, which strip away people's fundamental human rights, and the mass killing of civilians in Ballymurphy, in Derry, in Spring Hill, and elsewhere. So, let's pay tribute to the families who have remained tenacious and resolute and magnanimous and uh, graceful at the same time. But let's also resolve to walk the next steps with them as they decide what they're going to do in the upcoming period. A few days before uh, Johnson issued what was described as an apology, I was asked by a friend of mine, what did I think of an apology coming from the British government? And I said that an apology from Boris Johnson would be as about authentic as a bad toupee. Unfortunately, I was right. Apologies at this stage, if they're not sincerely meant, are a distraction. The British government must uphold its obligations and the Irish government must hold it to those obligations. And the Irish government, if it was a government in anything other than name, would use its consular services, its diplomatic services, its influence globally within the European Union and elsewhere to hold the British government to its obligations and to uphold the rights of citizens here in the north of Ireland. And finally, I just want to mention, because it's been in my head, that the Spring Hill massacre which led to the killings of people in the Spring Hill estate, which is a very small, it's actually a one street estate almost, running parallel to Ballamurphy, and between Ballamurphy and the White Rock and West Rock. The evening of 1972, John Dougal, who was age 16, was the first to die. He was the eldest of eight children. He was charged tried to help others who had been shot. Margaret Gargan was 13 years of age. Father Noel Fitzpatrick was a curate in St. John's Church, but he was based at Corpus Christi. He had been out to help a local man, Martin Dudley, who had been shot and wounded, and Martin, thankfully, is with us yet. He was shot through the neck. Father Fitzpatrick was the second, per, second priest to be killed in the conflict, and by by the irony of it, in the same area and at the same church. Paddy Butler was 38, he had six children, and his son Eddie was one of those shot and wounded during the Bella Murphy uh, massacre, which happened the August before. Paddy had gone out with Father Fitzpatrick to help the wounded. The last victim was David D. McCaffrey, who was 15 years of age. Forensic evidence showed that none of those killed or wounded were armed or had been in contact with any uh, weapons. And RUC detective admitted there was no investigation into the killings.
So these unfortunate people were killed by the British in Spring Hill. And they haven't had the same exposure as the other cases, and particularly the Bell and Murphy ones. So these families in Spring Hill deserve our support also. Father Des Wilson put it well when he said, there's still a long way to go to reveal the truth about what our neighbours suffered. It is worth the journey because one of our most heartening principles is that the truth will set us free. So it is the duty and privilege of all of us to reveal it. Well said, Father Des. And finally, 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 Edmund Putz, good man Edwin, he's now uh, heading to be ratified by the leadership of his party, having been elected by, I suppose, was it 17 and 19 perhaps? Uh, so he's going to have an interesting time, and we're all going to have an interesting time. And I want to wish Michelle O'Neill particularly well as she leads our team in that uh, time. And I remember that uh, when I was just about to stand down as Oakdoran Hen Feind, it was probably right up until that weekend. We were negotiating and Edwin was involved in those negotiations along with Arlene and others. And Edmund was constructive and he was positive. And as I've said before, I came to like him. And we got to know each other better. Now that isn't to say that he disagreed, or he agreed, I should say, with uh, my politics or I with his politics. But, you know, when you're when you're locked up with someone for long periods in negotiations, and you're yarning and talking, and there are long bouts of sitting about the place, and you discuss other uh, matters. That's that's what's happened. So, Edmund mayn't be all that he appears. But one thing is for certain. He led the charge to get rid of his leader. And now he faces exactly the same challenges that confronted her. It's about positive societal change. And he knows, as sure as he knows, the sun will rise in the morning, that that change is coming including constitutional matters. And he must also know by now that the best way to deal with change is to manage it with others. Standing aside, pulling out, may slow progress down, it may delay it, but that will only serve to deepen difficulties and it will fail. So I like to think that uh, in all of this, that Edwin knows that unless he faces up to this, and he may not, he knows he will end up like Arlene. Shine, it's been my custom to dedicate uh, a wee bit of music at the end of these podcasts. And last week, our good and loyal leader, Marty O'Toole and my immediate superior, Richard McCauley, wouldn't play Bob Marley singing redemption songs over some copyright issue. So there may be no music at the end of this, 
I hope there is. And whatever it is, if they play it, enjoy it. Enjoy the week. Kunyani Gia Eatcha Slan Lil Guramago. When blossoms still bloom on each tree, when leaves are still green in December, it's then that our land will be free. the death of her manhood, those men who would rather have died than to live in the cold chains of bondage, to bring back their rights when Only our rivers run free. Only our rivers run free.